Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Sarah Larniuk, erstwhile Winnipegger and Canada Land senior producer, now freelance reporter and producer based in London, who gets to take the London Overground past the ABBA voyage nearly every day. Welcome back to Shortcuts. Hi, Jonathan. Today on the show, we'll be talking about one year since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, what has changed in the past year for the war itself, for the world, and also for you personally, Sarah and Chinese interference in our elections. Where do we sort of pitch this between, yeah, we kind of expect this as part of the ambient noise that happens all the time, and holy shit, this is something that we should be talking about all the time now because it sounds like it could affect a lot of things. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by... Andrew Willens, Abby Todd, AJ Parasram, Clark Campbell, Christina Steinecke, John Brighthout, Kieran King, and Elliot. I'm Elliot. I'm a researcher and educator in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because it consistently shines a light not just on the story, but how it's framed. And hearing everyone's takes on the shows makes me feel hopeful about what's possible for Canada, even when Jesse isn't. I love starting my day with a new episode of Shortcuts. And the investigative series like Commons and Ratfucker are mwah, chef's kiss. If you're caught up, I recommend going back to the archives and listening to The Imposter. Thanks for all the fish. started here precisely one year ago. A war on Europe's doorstep. A full-scale invasion of a sovereign nation. 
If you want to stand and cheer with Ukraine, do that. You want to wave that Ukrainian flag, please do. But let people celebrate that Ukraine is still standing and Canada stands with it. So that was a clip of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau offering his literally full-throated support for Ukraine while shutting down a heckler last Friday, February 24th, at an event marking the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, or or at least the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, since, as you like to point out, Sarah, the conflict has been more or less ongoing since President Putin took Crimea nine years ago. And it shows no sign of stopping. Uh, thousands have been killed, millions have fled the country. Canada and other Western allies continue to support Ukraine via military aid, humanitarian aid, development assistance, and more, although it can be difficult sometimes to keep track of what's been committed, what's been delivered, what's left to still be sent over. A year ago, Sarah, you were a senior producer at Candleland, heading up the Monday show, and from your home in Winnipeg, you co-hosted the first episode of Shortcuts following the invasion. And at the end of that, you said to Emily Nicola, who was co-hosting with you, you said, I think that that's actually a big part of what has drawn so much attention to it like that this is a crazy invasion okay but if it boils on for a long time and a lot of people die as is likely people will lose interest i think the same way that that we always do so trying not to you know uh, virtue signal too much here but like yeah we need to look we can't be so comfortable in our homes here and just be like yeah this is our life i don't need to think about that like we need to think about it not just in ukraine sarah It's been a year. Do you think people have lost interest? I think the anniversary provided a good excuse for national and international media to pay attention again. But I do think that in the weeks and months leading up to the anniversary, yeah, interest has has decreased. When it is the same news every day, like, okay, the Russian advance is happening here, like, how much have we heard about the advance around the city of Bahmut? Like, that doesn't change a lot from day to day. And so the interest starts waning when the story remains largely the same. And I think it is a challenge in our industry because we get bored easily. And, and so does the public. It's not specific to our industry. It's they don't want to read the same story again. I mean, as someone who's now often been on the ground in Ukraine several times in the past year, including, I think, from the bulk of the past month, one thing about being a freelance there is that, you know, going by the ease with which you're able to sell stories, you have an almost firsthand quantifiable gauge by which to measure this interest, or at least the the market's interest in, in coverage. And is that something you've seen reflected in your opportunities? It, it's something I've seen reflected in my experience, but not my opportunities personally, because I've been really fortunate in that the companies I'm working with have had very constant coverage. So working with CBC, working with The Economist, these are two organizations that have really prioritized Ukraine coverage all year, and I anticipate they will continue to do that. However, on the ground, when I'm working with local producers and fixers that help me to develop a lot of stories, they are not seeing the same traffic, the same level of interest from journalists from outside the country anymore. And I think that that will only continue to fall. And especially on the weekend following the anniversary of the invasion, I'm guilty of this too. We all left. (laughs) There's a huge dip now in interest. There's a huge dip now in the number of, of journalists in the country. You hit the anniversary and then... I mean, I was there for a month. A month is about as long as I can tolerate in country before I have to kind of take a bit of a break. But it's a challenge 
to tell new and different stories that the public is interested in when it is the same problem. Like, it was the same with the war in Syria. It went on for so long that, like, how do you maintain public interest the way that we did in the first weeks after the invasion? I I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, in some ways, it's similar to the conversation that you and I have had, and I'm sure you've had with countless people, about, about climate change. It may, it may be not quite the correct frame of mind to look at the war as a long-term systemic problem, but it's in terms of a long-term issue that may come to the fore on occasion, mm-hmm. but is largely a long-term thing. How do you sustain interest, or how do you, or at least encourage engagement in something that is rumbling along in the background, progressing and causing carnage. Incremental change, right? It is the same issue. Because the first year, I don't think it was hard to get interest in Ukraine. I think it will become increasingly uh, difficult. And there is no end in sight for this war. So the longer it goes, the more difficult that will be. And I, I think when you step back and look at how how wild that is, that it's hard to get people interested in one of the biggest events currently shaping our geopolitical landscape. That's kind of wild. Going back again to that the shortcuts from a year ago, one of the things you said was, you know, we can't be so comfortable in our homes. And you're certainly someone who refused to sit comfortably in your home. I think last May, during your first real vacation from Candleland, you quietly went off to Ukraine on your own to do some freelance reporting for a variety of places. And obviously... After you left here in the fall, you moved to London and have been able to report from Ukraine on a fairly regular basis. So I guess, how does one decide to do that? And how did you decide to do that, to go and be a freelance conflict reporter? Conflict has always interested me. And how I explain it to people is not like the the boom. Like, I'm not interested in chasing bombs. But the extreme experience of war brings out very interesting things in human beings, uh, both the best and the worst. So I have always been interested in reporting on conflict for that reason. It's why I previously reported from Iraq. It's why I went to Ukraine in 2019. And in 2019, I kind of understood that this was a conflict I wanted to get more invested in. I had plans to start language classes so that I could report there more easily, et cetera, et cetera. There was a pandemic that got in the way, and it just distracted me. The invasion refocused me. And when I went and reported from there in May, I knew it was where I was supposed to be. Can you talk more about that? Because, I mean, it's not unusual for a journalist to, like, to know, like, oh, my God, this is, to think, I wish I were there doing this thing, being on top of this, because I can give a unique perspective or add something that no one else can. Hmm. But it's kind of rare to actually make that happen for oneself, to actually know exactly where in the world you need to be and what you need to be doing, and then to actually, in the span of just, if several months, go there and make that happen and make your life into that. Well, I would start by saying that I'm not naive enough to think that I have any skill that puts me in a position to to do this better than someone else. But that you can contribute meaningfully. Yeah, I mean, I hope that I'm contributing meaningfully. I'd like to feel that way. I think someone else could do this as well as I can, but there are so many impediments to becoming a freelance international reporter that there's not very many people who will. And a lot of those are financial barriers. So I know that I had the privilege of being able to overcome a lot of those obstacles. And I mean, the other thing is that I had to do it while I had a full-time job. Like I did it on my vacation time and I spent all the money I had from vacation to go and report from a war zone. So I'm not naive enough to think that I'm somehow special and that some other reporter couldn't do this, but I was willing to put 
my money where my mouth is on this story because I think it is so important. And the entire reason that I became a journalist was because I was fascinated with these moments in history. I did a lot of history classes. I was always fascinated by the idea of what it was like to be there when history was made. Like, did you understand the relevance? What was it like? I remember doing like World War II history classes and being like, what was it like to be a reporter there? What was it like to see history happen? And I get to see history happen now on a very regular basis. And that's more than I ever could have asked for out of this career. The people I've had a chance to meet, the stories I've had a chance to tell. I do, I do think that they shape how principally Canadians, because I principally still work for Canadian media outlets. I do think it's changed how people view this war. That's all worth it to me. Everything I've given up, everything I've sacrificed. It's all I've ever wanted out of this career. There's a lot of things that keep people from making this decision. And to be honest, like I hear from people a lot that, oh, you're so brave for doing this. Like, I don't feel brave. I feel like I'm doing my job, for one. Two, the thing that keeps me up at night when I'm there, when I'm here in London, either way, the thing that keeps me up at night is the financial risk I'm undertaking, not the fear of bombs, Mm. because it's... Every day, you have no idea if you're going to break even on your trip, if you're going to come home with the money to pay rent. Like, it's it's precarious. I've been lucky. I have found a lot of good work there, mm-hmm. but it, it stresses me out to no end. <laughs> I mean, you've been reporting from Ukraine, obviously, on a fairly regular basis. And in the past month, you know, the CBC News Network is often on in my house and I often see you on an almost daily basis. <laughs> you are still a freelancer, right? Like, Because I think people might not know that freelancers do that. When you've been in Ukraine, especially on these periods with more consistent dispatches, what does your day-to-day look like? What does it mean to get up in a war zone and try and do this? It's all out. I've never worked this hard in my entire life. I've never been so tired. And sorry, I'm not trying to complain. Like this no, is of course. it's nothing comparable to what the people are going through who are living there. But from an industry standpoint, like I've never worked this hard and I'm happy to. But it's why I remove myself from Ukraine for a couple months to recover and go back to a nine to five job here in London until I can go back, gear up and do it again. Because when I'm there, I don't have a day off. I don't really have an hour off. There's not time that you're not thinking about it. But I get up, check the news, see what has been bombed, destroyed. What is the news today about the level of destruction in that country? And then, like, what I I go there for, I don't actually go there principally to do breaking news hits. I go there principally to tell long-form stories, to tell documentary-level stories. And so I set aside, you know, the big events that I need to get to or the people I need to see to collect for those. And then through the middle of that, I try to patch in TV hits, radio stories, other audio packs. So like I did a couple of things for The Economist as well. I wrote an op-ed for the Winnipeg Free Press. Like I have hopefully one day um, a Massive feature coming out in The Walrus, which was the one I started collecting for last May. It's a very ad hoc thing. You, you go with where the news are. The, the funniest thing about working in that area is that, you know, you're constantly in touch with other journalists, other reporters. And you make plans to, like, either work together, travel together, or even just see each other for a beer after work. After work, I mean, at some point during the day. And they almost never happen. 
because every person is on this weird schedule where they're just going wherever they have an interview, wherever they have the news of the day. And we're all like just ships passing in the night and you can't really plan around anything. You only book a hotel a couple days in advance because you just have no idea where you'll be, what the safety situation will be. It's all it's all very strange. <laughs> Do you drive around or take the train? I take the train. <laughs> can't say enough good things about the train in Ukraine. You can go almost all the way to the front line. But not past the ABBA voyage. Not past the ABBA voyage. It does not have that added benefit. But you can go almost all the way to the front line. Night trains, a revelation. Like, this is how I get in and out of that country on a 15-hour night train. Night train to the front line would be a good name for your memoir about the experience. (laughs) Sold. I think the thing that gives me the biggest relief when I leave the country is turning off Telegram. (laughs) Because you have all these Telegram channels that are feeding you all of the information about updates from the front line, risks of missile threats, and it's just constant. And it does actually start to give you this idea about how fortunate I am because I get to turn them off. I get to leave. I get to turn them off. And it gives me a real appreciation for every single person who has been there all year. I've been there for like, what, a quarter of it. And... It's only like the tip of the iceberg as far as like stress level. This past weekend, you wrote a piece, another column for the Winnipeg Free Press. Yeah, we're sort of reflecting on the obviously the past year and the distance, both for yourself and for the conflict. You shared your recollections of the immediate start of the the invasion, images of bombs falling on Kiev, of people crying as they sheltered in the metros, of millions of people boarding the trains to flee, kissing their fathers, brothers, husbands goodbye, not knowing if they'd ever see them again. And how a year ago you watched from a distance on TV and computer screens and from the safety of your home in Winnipeg. And you wrote that this year on the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I will stand in Kiev's Maidan Square and take a deep breath in, savoring the fact that this country still stands. If you could send a message to yourself from a year ago about the conflict or about your relationship to it, what would you say? Oh, boy, that's a tough question. I don't know if a moment really helps because I don't know what I would say other than... Don't worry, you'll get there. Because you were working with me at the time. Because we worked remotely, I don't know how much you guys were aware of how, like, catatonic I had become. I couldn't do anything but watch coverage of the war in the days that followed the invasion. I felt so much guilt for not having followed the conflict. I felt guilt for not being there. I knew reasonably that, like, all of the major outlets were there and there was nothing I was going to contribute. But I still felt guilt for not being there. And... All I could do was cry. (laughs) And I just felt helpless to help. The connection to this story for me is deeper than just being a story. It is where my family came from. And so if I had to look back a year ago and tell myself something, it would be like, don't worry, you get there. You will get to help tell this story. And I hope that would have been comforting. But this year has been... Part of it has been really selfish because the ability to be in Ukraine and document this conflict has helped me to understand my own identity better. And especially in talking to all of the people who left Ukraine, I come up against this really interesting question about what that means to leave the country. Because I understand that they're prioritizing their safety and their security, and I don't blame them in any way, shape, or form. But my grandparents made the same decision. And my dad and I have talked a lot about this, like, recently. Did they make the right decision? What does that mean when people flee a country because it's too dangerous? And then maybe they don't come back. 
on the night train out of Ukraine, I got put in a cabin with a Ukrainian MP. And I talked to her about this. What does it mean if all Ukrainians are, are leaving? You know, what does that mean? They were already struggling with brain drain before the war. And she said that she thinks their estimates show that about 60% will come back. But that means that 40% of the people won't. I'm really struggling as I tell these stories from Ukraine to also discover my own identity in this country and what being Ukrainian means to me. Because prior to this war, I didn't really identify as Ukrainian. I knew it was part of my heritage, but it wasn't a core part of my identity. And that was only two generations removed. And so when I think about so many Ukrainians leaving, even if it's for something better, even if it's to build a new life, it's another part of the trauma of this war. Because what we're witnessing is an attempted genocide by Russia against Ukrainian people. And so I guess part of this is selfish for me because I'm going back. Mm -hmm. Because that's the only way I know how to replicate that defiance that the Ukrainian people have demonstrated throughout this war. Mm -hmm. Is that, yes, my grandparents left because it's what was best for them. It was how they protected their family. Mm. And now I can go back and tell the stories of the people living through this horror. And so it all feels very selfish mm -hmm. that I'm on this journey of self-discovery and learning more about my own identity in a war where there's been so much pain. And so it's all just very confusing and I'm not sure I've really worked it all out, but that's where I'm at. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. 
Sarah, as you very well know, we like to duly note things on this show. Today, I would like to note duly something, you know, odd and funny about the Canadian Screen Award nominations this year. Now, the Canadian Screen Awards are the big Canadian awards program for film and TV and some online media. And usually or often the funny thing is that they kind of nominate themselves for an award, which is to say (laughs) the previous year's Canadian Screen Awards show gets nominated at the next year's Canadian Screen Awards. (laughs) Okay. But because they actually haven't had like a live gala in a few years, that hasn't been the case. And I I think they're they're not going to be live anymore. But anyway, uh, after going through the 150 or so categories, what jumped out at me this year was... CTV got a bunch of nominations. One was for Best National Newscast for CTV News with Lisa Laflamme. <laughs> Another was for Best News Anchor National, Lisa Laflamme, for CTV National News with Lisa Laflamme. I assume she's going to win. I think there's a pretty good chance she'll win. Boy, that would be amazing. <laughs> okay, well, that's awkward. So then I, you know, was like, hmm, how did they, did they still put her in? Are things mended? How did they feel about that? So I went looking at, you know, Bell Media's own press releases about the nominations and noticed that, oh, there's no mention of Lisa Laflamme there. There's, they have a whole press release that has a full list of 2023 Canadian Screen Award nominations for Bell Media. And it omits, like, the two biggest categories that they're nominated for. Well, it mentions CTV National News, just takes her name out of it, but it does omit her category, the best news anchor national, altogether. And then I looked at their other press release about the nominations, and they said, CTV News secures a total of 10 nominations. And I counted through, and it's like, okay, well, that 10 would be 11 if they encountered the <laughs> best news anchor national. So as I suspected, we found out Soon after, from reporting from the Toronto Star, uh, from Joanna Chu, that yet she did end up sub- submitting herself for the award. Good. Well deserved. And in fact, apparently, by the Star's reporting, her name had been included on the original nomination submissions. Then at some point, she was cut out altogether, after which she submitted herself for Best National Anchor and received that nomination. So that was awkward and funny, and I just kind of assume that she is going to win. Duly noted. Sarah, what would you like to note duly today? I would like to note duly a very amazing hire that Carleton University has just made. They have hired Duncan McHugh into a tenure track position focused on Indigenous journalism and storytelling. And I just think that this is amazing. I've only had the pleasure of working with Duncan very briefly on his current show at CBC, Hell of a Story. But he's a delight to work with. And I mean, obviously, his reputation precedes him. Apparently, he says on Twitter that he will not be buying any tweed jackets. But, I mean, there's still time for him to change his mind on that. Duly noted. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. AG1 is a nutritional drink, a scoop mixed with water that's great for gut health, energy, all sorts of good stuff. It's got 75 high-quality vitamins and minerals and is packed with whole food-sourced ingredients. It's hard to figure out exactly what you're supposed to eat to optimize your nutritional intake. Am I missing out on certain minerals and vitamins in my diet? Am I getting enough probiotics? What about prebiotics? Is my gut healthy? Who knows? This is good. And this way, you don't even have to learn the difference between pre and probiotics because I have no idea. AG1 removes the guesswork for me. It's guaranteed that all the A's and B's and C's and K's are taken care of totally covered. It's really easy to incorporate in my daily routine. I just have to remember one thing each morning. I don't need to keep track of a bunch of supplements and multivitamins. I have it all there with AG1. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash That's athleticgreens.com 
slash Candleland. Check it out. Intelligence leaks are raising questions. Media reports have raised questions about interference in the last two elections. Did Ottawa ignore warnings about an MP allegedly backed by Beijing? Had China tried to tip the scales in a handful of specific writings? Is it time for a public inquiry? It's clear that Justin Trudeau has been covering up the interference of the authoritarian regime in Beijing. Foreign countries are trying to undermine people's confidence in our democracies and destabilize those democracies. And when we lean in on partisanship around this, we're actually helping them in doing their work of sowing confusion and mistrust. Last November, Global News had a story by Sam Cooper. It ran online with the headline, Canadian intelligence warned PM Trudeau that China covertly funded 2019 election candidates. Sources. Pretty big news, but I wouldn't say it was seismic. It made a splash, not a giant splash. In fact, the discrepancy between the splash it could have made and the splash it did make was enough that we devoted a whole episode of the Candle and Monday show to it, in which Jesse interviewed Sam Cooper. That was from January. But then on Friday, February 17th, the Globe and Mail got a similar scoop, and this became a much bigger deal. In a story that took up their entire front page without a photo, so a lot of white space, and then right in the center, they said, CSIS documents reveal Chinese strategy to influence 2021 election. Beijing had two goals, to seek return of minority liberal government and defeat conservatives perceived to be hawkish. It's so plausible, and this, you know, it's, this was like a whole, whole season-long plot arc on, on Veep. We can't have this discussion. We are still a nation of laws. Ish. Of course. But let's be clear about what we're not talking about, okay? We are not talking about letting the Chinese influence our presidential election, and certainly not in exchange for me recognizing those islands. Sam Cooper's story had been about the 2019 election, and it said that the alleged election interference network included members from both the liberal and conservative parties, according to sources with knowledge of the briefs. Basically, it was touching on members of both parties— it didn't really say to exactly to what ends other than, you know, broadly advancing Chinese interests. The Globe story, on the other hand, is about the 2021 election, and it was pretty clear that according to the documents and sources they were relying on, there was a specific goal and a specific aim that Beijing was hoping for a minority liberal government, and they were working to help liberals and defeat conservatives. That, as you could imagine was big news, and not just because of how the Globe played it. They played it on the front page in a way they would do like a year-long investigation that would run on a Saturday. But even that would have a photo. This was, I can't recall the last time that something ran on a Friday like this, basically take up the whole page, the Globe and Mail version of like a red alert. Sarah, I mean, obviously you're in London now, but you were in Ukraine the past Mm -hmm. couple weeks, and so I'm sure of other things to worry about. This story still crossed my radar, though. Don't worry. (laughs) Exactly. What have you made of this so far? I think that fundamentally what we're talking about here is a change in the geopolitical realities that we exist in. When I reported on the Russian disinformation campaigns after the invasion last year, I did reference a 2019 parliamentary report that discussed how both Russia and China have been trying to influence politics in Canada for some time, including elections. And at that point, intelligence authorities had said that it had not reached the point of influencing an election to date. But they certainly were leaving that very big yet in there. So this story 
reminded me of that and the fact that we shouldn't be surprised by this. And in the Decibel episode that Bob Fife did on this, he said as much. He's like, we shouldn't be surprised that this is happening. What their revelations revealed was was to the extent that this is happening, how far Beijing is going in actually pursuing electoral distortions in Canada. And yeah, this is one of those stories where I feel like you know, I was trying to get a handle on it. And then it sort of, the more you look at it, the more it stretches out in front of you, like one of those shots from like the movie Vertigo or from anything now where, you know, the depth of field massively increases and it feels like the, the what's in front of you suddenly goes on and on and on and on forever. Because every day it feels like every few hours there's new reporting about a new alleged connection or avenue of influence or something else the Chinese government in some way tried to leverage or fiddle with an electoral process. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the other thing is that these are all, they are allegations, but you wouldn't even really get that from like the Globe reporting or even the lead. It's states matter of factly. China employed a sophisticated strategy to disrupt Canada's democracy in the 2021 federal election campaign as Chinese diplomats and their proxies backed the re-election of Justin Trudeau's liberals, but only to another minority government, and worked to defeat conservative politicians considered to be unfriendly to Beijing. The full extent of the Chinese interference operation is laid bare, et cetera, et cetera. So that states it matter-of-factly. I don't think that's wrong. Like, you and my, I might differ on that. I don't think that that's the wrong approach for the globe to take. Okay. What the debate has become is whether or not they succeeded, right? Like, what the globe says is that they revealed a strategy that Beijing was trying to implement, and we don't know to what extent it was successful in influencing the outcome of the election. The reports that have come out since have said that it wasn't successful, but like, I don't know what metric we're, we're playing by at that point. I also do not doubt for a moment that the reporters have done their due diligence to verify the credibility of the allegations. And certainly these documents are credible enough that they were shared internally with senior officials and were shared with intelligence partners. But I mean, we are still, at least in these cases, going by what CSIS's framing of what happened and CSIS's framing and descri descriptions of what took place in a way that perhaps if it were, you know, running from with police sources or a police press release, I think might raise more eyebrows. Maybe whoever shared it with the, the newspaper did so for their own reasons, which is not to say, which again, not to say that makes it and the information contained necessarily less legitimate because both things can be true. I feel like that's a perspective, at least another layer that maybe faded into the background a bit. I mean, as, since, as you alluded to, the reporting, you know, internal reports since, uh, or the government reports since, or have basically confirmed in broad strokes, or there was this meddling effort, which is also not in itself surprising. What you're, I think, getting at is, uh, I think, almost what Justin Trudeau actually said after the fact was that a lot of these strategies that both Russia and China have been documented using in Canada and, and in other countries. So like, again, none of this is surprising. This has happened all around the world. But their strategies frequently rely on destabilizing democracy and destabilizing governments. And so both things can actually be true, as you said. It can be true that they tried to influence the 2019 and 2021 elections. It can also be a strategy now for us to have doubt cast on our own democracy and our own election system. And I think that we have to be very weary of that. And Bob Fife, again, the Globe and Mail reporter on this, he said one thing in the, on the Dust Bowl that really kind of 
seems to be the thing that I'm taking away from this is that transparency is the only thing that can really solve this. The best way to deal with this kind of interference is sunshine and transparency. If the liberals had come forward and been more forthright about all they knew, all that the CSIS was telling them, this wouldn't have blown up the way it did. They at least would have had more control over how it blew up, I suppose. And people would have less doubt, right? It's certainly, I would say, hard to imagine what could have taken place that would look worse for them than the transparent evasiveness with which the prime minister is currently greeting it. The very fact that, you know, he's pulled out a variety of excuses of which we could probably play a montage here. And amplifying and giving reason, giving partisan reasons to mistrust the outcome of an election, mistrust the experts at Elections Canada and in our our security services and our uh, top public servants who are saying that the election integrity held. That's something that uh, we've seen from elsewhere is not a good path to go down for society or for democracy. One of the things we've seen, unfortunately, over the past years is a rise um, in uh, anti-Asian racism linked to the pandemic uh, and concerns being risen uh, around uh, people's loyalties. All Canadians can have total confidence that the outcomes of the 2019 and the 2021 elections were determined by Canadians and Canadians alone at the voting booth. You know, ranging from saying like, well, it didn't affect the outcome, as though that itself settles the matter, to, Mm -hmm. you know, it didn't, you know, this plays into anti-Asian racism. It probably does. It probably does. But isn't a satisfactory response from your prime minister either. Exactly. We can't we can't start questioning the veracity of our elections because that's what they want. Unsatisfactory. Which once again, like, that's also probably true, but none of those really address the thing, which is okay, now that we if don't not know, but have a very strong idea, not just that there was this influence, but that the how the the exact means by which at least a chunk of it took place. Why are we not more curious about that and preventing it from happening again in the future? And why won't you call an inquiry? And it seems inevitable. This is one of the cases where it seems inevitable that an inquiry will be called. And so for every day, every hour that he stalls or that they stall, yeah, it's just more and more embarrassing. For all we know, by the time this 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 episode comes out, when we're recording this on the Wednesday, by the time this comes out early Thursday morning, there may be an inquiry on the coming. Well, and and there is, I think, a parliamentary investigation. But what like front burner? had former CSIS director Dick Fadden on. And what he was talking about was that thing that Trudeau touched on about the partisanship kind of ruining the ability to actually investigate this. He's advocating for a complete investigation that is nonpartisan so that people can have faith in it and so that people don't have to question democracy in this country. The same way they investigated the Emergencies Act, sans partisanship. That's what he's saying is the only solution here. And and I kind of agree because there's no way that we can expect MPs to discuss this in any kind of good faith manner. It would just come down to party lines. By the time this episode comes out, they will have done so in a committee hearing. So there was this report. They've been pointing to it for a few days and then finally released it on Tuesday called The Report on the Assessment of the 2021 Critical Election Incident Public Protocol by Morris Rosenberg, who, as the conservatives are quick to point out, he was a former head of the Trudeau Foundation. And during that period, the foundation accepted a donation, a, a 
questionable or dubious donation that may have been connected to the Chinese government. And as the Globe then followed up with its own reporting based on more intelligence leaks, yeah, the intelligence was pretty sure that this money had indirectly come from the Chinese state in order to broadly curry influence. I mean, yeah, it's the sort of thing where something that was theoretically a nonpartisan report is now like, uh. And now I'm breaking in to say that after we recorded this, the Trudeau Foundation announced that they would be returning the donation. It's not that I think that the Globe did anything wrong in publishing any of this. I want to be clear about that. However, as journalists, I think we always have to think about what happens after we publish. At least now we do, because in the disinformation world we live in, like we know how this is going to play out. This is going to just discredit the liberals in every way, shape or form on the right side of the political spectrum not necessarily based in reality. Like, you can read all of this and you can take away legitimate concerns. You can also see how this is going to become just, you know, the tip of the iceberg oh for God. the insanity to follow. Like, it it will not stop here. And the xenophobia thing as well. I think we have to be very aware of the fact that this is going to perpetuate anti-Chinese racism in Canada and... That's not to say you don't publish the story, but boy, is this, it just it just feels really, I don't know, dangerous. Explosive. Explosive. Certainly. And yet, it's weird. It's one of those things that it feels like a year from now could be some, for whatever reason, could fade away or fade into the background just in a series of committee hearings and reports that people don't pay as much attention to exactly. and just be used to remain very, very alive on the far right. Or it could be the sort of thing where you could imagine it dominating the discourse for the next year or two or right up through the election, depending on yeah. any number of factors. Really, I think mostly depends on Pierre Polyev's communication strategy. <laughs> Is that wrong to say? No, I mean, I think that's <laughs> correct. I think the only thing that would knock, that would, you know, prevent this from being a key talking point going forward is if something bigger knocks it off in the end, the short term, as the more details come out on a frequent basis and we learn all the ways that influence has been alleged to have taken place. And we'll see what happens with TikTok, which the federal government has, has said, basically, public public servants or people with government-controlled phones should not have TikTok on it. And, you know, is that just them picking, like, the absolute lowest hanging fruit as a way to show that they're getting serious? Is it coincidental? Does it even matter? And Or is it hypocritical when he says that this that stokes anti-Asian racism, but this wouldn't? I don't know. It seems like, like you'd, you'd think the lowest hanging fruit would be, like, why don't we have a foreign agents registry? Yeah. But instead, there's like, let's ban TikTok. Well, and like I said from the start, I really just think that this is a demonstration of our government's abject failure to address the new geopolitical reality we live in. Like, I, mm -hmm. I really think that mm -hmm. our government is not doing enough to prevent and stop foreign interference in our in our elections. I think that that's the bottom line. And I hope, I desperately hope that that isn't something that we lose in the next year as we go through all the parliamentary reports, as you said. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thanks so much for joining me, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I am on Twitter kind of at Goldsby. I, I am on Twitter at Goldsby. I'm also kind of on Mastodon, but I mean, it was only kind of on Mastodon. <laughs> you could email me at Jonathan at CanadaLand.com. Where can people find you, Sarah? Uh, Twitter seems like a good place to send people. I'm at Sarah Larnuke. Good luck spelling my last name. <laughs> Let me see if I can do it from memory. L-A-W-R-Y-N-U-I-K. Nailed it. Yay! As always. 
This episode is produced by Beeble the Sard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on candle and merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to candleland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Candleland. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.